You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 11th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Should public bodies be allowed to boycott Israel? What's North Korea's strategy in 2024? I'm Georgina Godwin. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you live from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guests Nadine Batchelor-Hunt and John Everard will discuss the day's biggest stories, including AI taking over language learning technology and the prevalence and normalisation of public lying. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily. Let's start by looking at the latest in the case brought by South Africa at the International Court of Justice, the ICJ in The Hague. South Africa accuses Israel of violating the 1948 Genocide Convention, enacted in the wake of the mass murder of Jews in the Holocaust, which mandates all countries to ensure such crimes are never repeated. Well, I'm joined now down the line by Yossi Meckelberg, who's an Associate Fellow on the Middle East and North African programme at Chatham House. Yossi, many thanks for joining us. I wonder if you could tell us more and outline South Africa's case. Good evening, Georgina. The, the case that South Africa has made is, is trying to show that there was not all, because we all see what happens in, 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 in Gaza, the, the, the death or the destruction of Gaza. You know, it's under siege. There is a huge humanitarian disaster right now in Gaza. But the big question where it's, you know, all this accusation of genocide, then whether it's committed with intent to destroy the Palestinian people. And the case of, of, of South Africa, yes, there, 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 is, there is intention there. And they, they quote uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu about destroying the Amalek, which quotes, uh, quotes from the Old Testament, they show a video of soldiers singing to this effect, and they say, see, what Netanyahu says is what actually translates into uh, the, the soldiers' uh, behavior. Uh, and then there is a, a list of, of accusations about what the war right now does, for instance, in terms of, of reproduction uh, in, in, in hospital and so on and so forth. I think the most, the most challenging, again, we, we know what happens in Gaza. We see it every day on our screens. The question if it can connect it to intent to destroy, while tomorrow we are going to hear from the, the Israeli defense of that, and they will say this is part of the war. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of nitpicking about exactly what the definition of genocide is. The, the, the definition in Article 2 of the Convention describes genocide as a crime committed with the intent to destroy a national, ethnic, racial or religious group in whole or in part. It doesn't include political groups or so-called cultural genocide. Now, Israel presumably will argue that they are trying to get rid of Hamas and not all Palestinians. Yeah, and they will, they will argue that this is, was the aim of the war from the beginning, uh, to destroy Hamas, whatever it means. Even this is, is, is not very clear. But the question is in the process. I must admit that my worry 
is you know the two wars if if israel is is actually eventually it found out to commit genocide in gaza where do you take it from there do you can still negotiate with an israeli government that is genocidal on the other hand if it will prove that israel you know whatever it happens there it's not genocide does it make it all right is it then is killing 23000 uh, people is, is is destroying Gaza. It's right. So then, if it's not if it's not genocide, can it go on for for much longer? And I think, in this sense, even from the point of view of 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 the war itself, instead of uh, advocating for immediate ceasefire and then to look into genocide, I think they put first the issue of genocide, then uh, and then dealing with ceasefire later. Mm. How has Israel been defending itself so far? What's it said in advance of its appearance at the court? Well, the, the, the defense is that Israel is a war after what happened 7 of October. They, they see it, uh, what happened in October 7 as an act of genocide because it targeted specifically uh, Israelis and, 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 and then claimed that this was retaliation. And again, there is another very problematic notion in international humanitarian law, which is of proportionality, whether the response from Israel was proportionate. And and this is another thing that I'm, I'm sure will be discussed for, for many months, if not years, whether it, this, this, is, this is the case. But one of their arguments, if Hamas tomorrow lays down the, its, its arms, the war is over. If it surrenders, if it stops the war, if it returns the hostages, then the war is over, and then there is no there is no war. I think this this kind of the lines that uh, Israel is going to defend itself. So, what's the timeline on this? When can we expect a decision? Well, I think the the case itself might take years, but I think the question if this is going to be an interim decision that that can be a much quicker one, if there is signs of, 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 of genocide. Then because Israel signed to the is a signatory to the convention, it means that if it goes to then to the Security Council, it will become binding. It will be interesting then to see how the United States is going to react to respond to this because it's already vetoed two decisions or two resolutions in the Security Council. Then it's if there is a case of, of genocide, at least according to the ICJ, it makes it more difficult for the United States actually to support the continuation of the war and veto such a resolution. And is there any guarantee that Israel will abide by whatever's decided? There are no guarantees in, in, in this sense, because when one looks for guarantees, one looks also for what where, where enforcement is going to, to take place. And as we know in international relations, the most difficult thing when it comes to international law is actually enforcement. I think much of it depends, and I think that's where, personally, I believe the diplomatic and the pressure, especially on Washington in this case, to put pressure on Israel to at least to move towards the ceasefire could have yielded better better results. Now it's become especially, and you mentioned that the definition of genocide and, and, and the idea of the convention came after the Second World War. It makes it a way more emotive in Israel and to, de- to defend itself against this accusation. 
while it feels so justified as a result of, of, of the terrorist attack of October 7th. Mm. We're seeing international support slowly leak away from Israel. Is that the case within the country? How do Israelis feel about Netanyahu? There is a real paradox, and Israel society is paradoxical at the best of, of times, definitely a time of war. On the one hand, the support in, in Netanyahu is 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 the lowest since since he became first time a prime minister. It's not even regarded as a legitimate government right now. On the other hand, there is full support in the in, in the war, and even in the way that it's conducted. You don't in, in also because of the certain elements. You know, the more what's regarded as the center right joining the war cabinet. So there is there is legitimacy as far as the war. Uh, is concerned. There is unfortunately very, very little empathy among many segments in the Israeli society for for the suffering of the Gazan people. Many of them just see them as 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 collaborating with Hamas, as culprit, they see all Gaza basically support, still reminding Gazan people that they supported 17 years ago in election Hamas, uh, whether it's relevant and probably not relevant at all. And that's, that's where we stand right now. And I, I don't expect that the Israeli society in this sense will change immediately as long as the war continues. And so if we look into some hope for a ceasefire, we need to look outside Israel, not inside Israel. Yossi, thank you very much indeed. That's Yossi Meckelberg there. This is the Monocle Daily and I'm Georgina Godwin. Now, I was hoping to introduce you to Nadine Batchelor-Hunt, who's a political reporter for Politics Home, uh, and she's not here because of a train crisis. Now, we understand she's currently speed walking, and in fact, I think I can actually see her approaching. She's been speed walking from Marlebone Station, so that's pretty fabulous that she's actually made it here. Uh, but what I, the person I do have with me right now is John Everard, who's the former British ambassador to Belarus, to Uruguay and to North Korea. John, British trains, aren't they the absolute worst? No. Try, <laughs> try German trains right now. If you can find one running, which, teehee, you probably can't. I mean, the strike there has got on to dimensions that British trains don't even dream of. The British trains can be a nuisance, but believe me, there are depths and plums. And why? what's going on in Germany? Why is that happening? Because we, we thought they were really efficient. Well, yes, when they run, they really are efficient. But if, if you're not running, it doesn't mean matter how efficient you are. You're, you're simply not there. And I understand uh, that you've had a bit of a memory problem this week, so I don't know how you know anything about German trains. You appear to have forgotten everything. <laughs> no, not, not, not quite. I have had, and I'm actually getting quite proud of this, a genuine bout of transient global amnesia. I was cycling through Hyde Park, And the next thing I knew, I was in a hospital cubicle with a neurologist peering over me. Six hours of my life just blanked. Somehow, I got myself home from Hyde Park. Part of my brain still functioned. I remember the cycle route. I remembered how to cycle. I remembered how to cycle through London traffic. Uh, Semi-conscious? Wow. My wife tells me I was semi-coherent. I was asking the same question again and again. And she walked me to hospital. I have no recollection of that, no recollection of arriving, no recollection of the first hour in the hospital until my memory kicked back on again. So Completely bizarre. No, it, nobody understands why these episodes happen. They are rare. Do you think I'd get a communal garden syndrome? Um, <laughs> they are rare. Three people in 10,000 per year 
get them. Recurrent is almost unheard of. Uh, it's completely bizarre, quite unsettling, a reminder of the fragility of life and a good dinner table conversation piece. Absolutely. Well, listen, now we can uh, actually welcome Nadine. Welcome. Uh, welcome Hello. Nadine. Thank you for your big speed walk. We were just talking about how utterly awful British trains are. Uh, it's unbelievable. I haven't had a train journey um, for, over the last... I'd say six months that hasn't had an issue with trains. So I'm, yeah, apologies about that. And um, it was delayed by an hour. It should have been an hour ago. So talking about trains and uh, things that perhaps we would not rather do. I mean, I think one thing that that I would rather do is boycott all trains. <laughs> I hate trains. I, I actually, <laughs> and every single journey I get, I, every single train journey I have seems to like embed the hatred that I have for them. So, um, but they're good for the environment. But I just think there is a particular problem that we have in the UK with trains running on time, even Wi-Fi. I mean, we don't even have operational Wi-Fi in our trains. I could rant about trains all day, but I'm sure you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, let's let's rant about boycotts. Because in the UK, plans to prevent public bodies from implementing their own boycotts against Israeli goods have cleared the commons, despite opposition from Tory MPs. The Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, BDS movement aims to end international support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians, but it's been labelled anti-Semitic by Israel, by Germany and the US. Defenders of the bill argue that boycotting businesses linked to Israel based on nationality is racist, and it also risks tipping into anti Semitism because many businesses affected are Jewish owned. So Nadine, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about the detail of this bill. It's essentially designed to kind of tackle um, the, the BDS movement, which is a boycott, divest and sanction movement. It's a Palestinian-led movement that seeks to um, encourage people in a similar way to what we saw with South Africa uh, in the 80s um, uh, and early 90s to, to, to divest from Israeli products and therefore put pressure on the Israeli government to um, lift the occupation of Palestine and then also to enable uh, Palestinian uh, refugees or descendants of refugees to have the right of return to their villages in what is now modern day Israel because obviously mandatory Palestine was divided up. Um, but it's controversial because uh, some people say, you know, it inevitably means it's often Jewish owned businesses that are targeted. That has echoes of the Holocaust and also they argue that, you know, it's not good to do it on the basis of a nationality. Um, but on the, obviously on the flip side the say it's a legitimate way to voice uh, discontent and unhappiness um, with what Israel has been doing in the in the occupied territory. So it's a very fraught issue, and the government kind of introduced this bill as a way of trying to show that they were uh, taking action on this, saying that BDS undermines community cohesion and um, arguing that you know it is anti-Semitic. But it's controversial also because the legislation could mean that councils and public bodies like that could be could find it more difficult to boycott other. Uh, countries like China, for example, over uh, the abuse of yoga Muslims there, or even Russian products. So it's kind of fraught in many ways. There's, there's various critiques. Some are critical over the, you know, we want to be able to do what we, we, want, we want to be able to, as a public body, boycott Israel. But others, like others, say there's actually more broader issue of it could stifle freedom of speech and freedom from action elsewhere with other regimes. So it, that's why it's quite a, a fraught issue. Um, so Nadine mentioned South Africa, and I wonder if there is other than that a precedent for this on other international issues and how powerful these public boycotts are. They are less powerful than those organising them would like to believe. They are, more than anything, I think, a demonstration of of dissent, of protest uh, against whatever it is, what, the matter at hand. But I think it's important to remember that this, this bill has a, a lot of hinterland. This was a 2019 Tory manifesto promise uh, and essentially 
long before uh, the the Israel-Gaza war. Uh, It was intended to try to codify how far uh, government bodies, public bodies can go in effectively pursuing their own foreign policy. Uh, Is it right that local councils can take actions in a foreign policy field that are not constant with those of national foreign policy? I I don't know the answer to that, but it is a question that has to be addressed and debated properly. In Germany, for example, uh, the individual lender... Um, are allowed quite a lot of latitude in taking different foreign policy positions from the federal government. But this is not a federal country. And there are big questions, I think, over whether some of the boycotts uh, were uh, actually helpful and whether they actually promoted British foreign policy. Mm. Um, The language about Israel and Palestine seems to have been inserted at a later stage of the drafting of the bill uh, to make it relevant, if you like, uh, to to make it current, and perhaps uh, in Tory uh, eyes uh, to assuage uh, some of those who are getting more and more uncomfortable uh, with the the views that are expressed by some local authorities. Mm. I mean, Nadine, should public bodies then be allowed to impose boycotts? I think this, it's a difficult one. I think it's an ideological one. Um, You know, you could say, I mean, for example, look at some of the councils we've seen since the war broke out uh, between Hamas and Gaza on the 7th of October. Labour's lost um, control over some councils because councillors there have said we are not happy with Labour's position on foreign policy. We don't feel like it's the right thing. It doesn't reflect the views of our members and therefore we are going to leave the Labour Party and then Labour lost control of those councils. So I think it's inevitable that people who are elected as councillors are going to have political views Mm. that will kind of, they feel they want to be able to express in their roles. But I do think it's a broader ideological argument um, that I I don't think MPs have got a unified answer on. I mean, I interviewed um, Leila Moran uh, yesterday uh, for, uh, day before yesterday. And she's the only Palestinian, uh, person of Palestinian heritage within the UK Parliament. Yes, she's a Liberal Democrat MP. Um, One of her parents was Palestinian and she has family in in Gaza and she said the bill is divisive, the timing of the bill is poor, um, you know, and and that it should be pulled and that, you know, we're seeing the kind of the the consequence of the war in Gaza on on our streets with protests and all this sort of stuff. So she thinks the bill is just devices and unnecessary. So yeah, I think it comes down to a matter of ideology and clearly the government, despite um, some reservations by some of their own MPs, I mean, Alicia Kern, she's the chair of the Foreign Committee and she's also said she's not happy uh, with the bill. Um, They seem to think it's the right thing to do. Whether Labour will do something else if they get elected later this year remains to be seen. Now, of course, the official way to do this against a country is sanctions. And North Korea is one of the most sanctioned countries in the world. Not that it seems to make much difference. Uh, In his New Year's address, Kim Jong-un declared North Korea will no longer seek reconciliation and reunification with South Korea as his nation vowed to put three new military spy satellites into orbit this year. The state-run news agency reported that Kim said inter-Korean relations had become a relationship between two hostile countries and two belligerents at war, adding that if Washington and Seoul were to attempt a military confrontation with Pyongyang, its nuclear war deterrent will not hesitate to take serious action. Now we see that North Korea has purged all references to unification from its propaganda websites. So John, this is obviously your area of expertise. Can you talk us through this change in attitude? It came quite suddenly. Um, Of course, North Korea enjoyed a kind of honeymoon period with South Korea under the presidency of Moon Jae-in up until uh, 2018. Didn't get as far as they would have liked because the South Koreans couldn't deliver all the North Koreans were asking for because of international law. Under the current presidency of President Yoon, um, the things have gone way back. And the North Koreans are 
appear to have decided that enough is enough, uh, that they are fed up with swapping between uh, different South Korean administrations. Uh, these talks, even under liberal South Korean presidents, get nowhere. So they're cutting everything, abandoning the idea of reunification, uh, abandoning any reopening of the various uh, hotlines that go between North and South Korea, scrubbing the references from their websites, as you rightly say. And interestingly, for the first time, describing South Korea as a state. Kim Jong-un hasn't done this before. A belligerent state, he's very rude about it, but a state. Mm. It sounds as if they are groping their way towards uh, what we call in other contexts a two-state solution, uh, where the two sides coexist. I, it, this is difficult for North Korea because North Korea knows that in the long term, it's had it. I mean, if South Korea continues to exist, a fantastically more successful version of Korea than the North, eventually North Korea goes under. It gets absorbed by the South. You know, the, the dynamics are just too strong. So talking about South Korea as a state, acknowledging its right to exist by implication... And uh, su suggesting that, for example, you, know, you, you have interstate relations rather than pure inter-Korean relations is quite a bold step forward. Mm. Why, though, this ramping up of aggression towards Seoul and Washington? I mean, it's always been bullish. So North Korea's always been bullish, but suddenly they really are pushing back. Are they, are they intimidated by all the activity? I, I think they do worry genuinely about Seoul's tremendous success in rallying its allies, trilateral exercises, the Japanese as well as the Americans on board and exercising alongside South Korean forces. Uh, and I think they feel they may be losing the initiative. But there's a scarier agenda here too. I've just said that North Korea long term isn't going to be around for much longer. What are the few things it can do to solve its problems is to overrun South Korea. Now, this kind of sounds sort of bad sky-fi, but it probably doesn't seem that way to North Korea's leaders. And if you decide that you've got nothing to lose, uh, you over on South Korea, you'd almost certainly do so with the first use of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, North Korea has depleted its stockpiles, has given a great deal to Russia, as we, we know from other contexts. So you would destroy the South Korean military using tactical nuclear weapons, and then seek to swarm. You would be you talking about the first use of nuclear weapons since, uh, since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And Kim Jong-un has told his generals to be on a war footing with South Korea this year. Mm. Stand by. Uh, Nadine, South Korea has warned that North Korea is using Ukraine as a test site for nuclear-capable missiles and that Hamas is using North Korean missiles in the Middle East. Do you have given any credence to this claim? I think, you know, somebody who... Yes, as a political reporter in the UK, I think it's part of this kind of the way in which international actors involve themselves in foreign conflicts to frustrate their enemies kind of thing. And I think, you know, you, um, North Korea providing weapons to Hamas, for example, when they know that the US is the biggest funder of Israel, it's almost like a proxy kind of situation. And we see it a lot with like, with rebels, with rebel groups like Hezbollah, the Houthi rebels um, and Hamas. Um, you know, these kind of groups that are funded by Iran are almost proxies. So I think in a way, North Korea providing weapons to these groups who are enemies of the, you know, the West is a kind of way of of them functioning as a bit of a proxy and, as you've rightly said, a kind of test a test ground um, um, that we've seen in Ukraine. So, yeah, I think it's more to frustrate the West and particularly America's interests by making whether they're kind of supporting them more difficult to achieve um, their military objectives. So, John, just, just briefly then, how might we sum up North Korea's strategy for 2024? 
belligerent, aggressive, uh, retreating into the warm embrace of China on the one hand and Russia on the other, abandoning diplomacy with the wider world. They've also been closing a lot of embassies. Uh, about a dozen have so far been closed and opening consulates in Russia and in China. Dangerous and unstable. This is one to watch. Remember that in international affairs, just because things are absolutely awful doesn't mean they can't get a great deal worse. Yeah. I'm going to ask my last question in Russian. Считаете ли вы, что мы все должны учить русский язык? Собирается ли Путин захватить мир? So that question was put through an AI app and I asked it in English and it automatically translated it into Russian, giving me a rather odd voice, I felt. Uh, did you understand the question, John? The, asking whether Putin's in favour of peace? Yes? Uh, something like that. I can't remember yes. now. <laughs> I mean, I I saw the Russian, but the the meaning took me aback, rather. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was wondering if if Putin is going to take over the world. And if he doesn't, it seems to me that AI certainly is poised to do so. So the language learning app Duolingo has been steadily firing uh, contract writers and translators, replacing them with artificial intelligence in one of the most high-profile instances yet of a company getting rid of human workers in favour of AI. Uh, Nadine, do you think that AI has made language learning easier? I think it's probably made it more accessible. Um, for example, if you're on Twitter now, although the, uh, so it, on Twitter now, when you see a, a tweet that's in a foreign language, often there's the option to tra- translate it. But there was an example of it kind of going awry when Benjamin Netanyahu had put out a tweet about um, having like a settlement near Gaza and it had been translated by the Google Translate as in Gaza. And then this went viral and some journalists, commentators, not reporters, but still went on TV and said, well, Benjamin Netanyahu's talking about um, just been opening a settlement in Gaza and it's kind of like, you know, the AI translation there wasn't that great. So I think there is a role for AI in translation, in translating, in making the world more accessible and things like that. But on the flip side, I think we do have to treat it with caution because particularly with translations, they can mean very different things. And as was clear with this particular tweet from Netanyahu, the subtlety of, I think he meant, he said the Gaza envelope, but it was um, translated as in Gaza. It's quite different in that context. So um, yeah, I think you have to be careful with AI regardless and particularly in translation. But I mean, I wonder if we even need to learn languages now that these tools exist. Now, I mean, AI can do the job. Will people even bother to to, to become fluent in a, in a foreign tongue? Well, very sadly, it seems that long before AI entered the scene, people were giving up on languages anyway. I mean, re- recruitment for language courses uh, across the UK, I, I think uh, across the Western world, is going right down. I think it's very sad. I think we, we are probably getting towards the stage where you will be able to speak into an app of some kind and have uh, the language, uh, your language translated into the language of your listener, whatever that might be. And I think that would work fine for a, a scientific conversation or just information gathering, but it prevents you from actually understanding the feelings and the rhythms of the language. Good for communicating facts, not so good for communicating human values and emotion. And I wonder, I mean, given the instances of cyber hacking and the fact that sometimes we just don't have access to our phones or our apps through power outages or whatever, uh, China taking over the world, perhaps, <laughs> maybe these old ways are the best. I mean, should we embrace the analytics 
analogue and, and revive more old-fashioned skills like language learning? I absolutely think language learning needs to survive because, exactly because of that. You know, AI can be manipulated, it can be altered, it can be uh, interfered with. And if people en masse start relying on, you say, if new, I don't think this would ever happen, but God forbid, let's say newsroom started relying on AI and there was no, they were translating something Putin said and there was no one in the room that could verify whether or not it was accurate. They were completely relying on a computer. I mean, as we saw with the post, post office scandal as well, you can't completely rely on computers. They are susceptible to error. You can't replace that. Um, and, and you're right, you know, when we talk about the, you can convey emotion and humour and, 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 and so many things by having a conversation with somebody that you can't get through a computer. So I think AI needs to be used sparingly and I, I really hope it doesn't mean that we, we see the death of, of languages. I like being able to translate things online as, you know, just click translate now. Um, but I want to make sure that people are still translating uh, learning languages so I know that it's I can have some faith in it and if yeah. it's not accurate someone will flag it. <laughs> now of course cyber hacking is becoming a huge problem and it's now entirely possible to create a deep fake video that apparently shows someone doing or saying something that's entirely false. Sometimes though people do just lie like Britain's former Prime Minister. The Privileged Committee have found that Boris Johnson did deliberately lie he lied um, at the time to the Commons. He lied about lying later. He lied about whether he lied about the lying. He lied at every point and he ended up calling the committee liars. So that's Boris Johnson being pilloried by Ian Hislop on the television show Have I Got News For You? And Johnson, of course, is not the only high-profile liar. Donald Trump has some experience in this area. His latest blatant untruth is that he's immune from criminal charges over his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. He has a huge platform, so these lies are spread quickly and easily. Another person with a large public reach is the US football star Aaron Rodgers. Now, he's told his millions of followers, without a shred of evidence, that the comedian and TV host Jimmy Kimmel was a close associate of the sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. And, of course, the Epstein and Maxwell trials were full of various untruths. That clip of, of Hislop on Johnson comes from an entertainment show. It made people People speaking about Boris Johnson and Donald Trump these days, they do it with a shrug of the shoulders now. We expect them to lie. So when and how did lying become so acceptable, John? I would say in about the 7th century BC. Uh, I mean, we're talking about this like it's news. Politicians in various times have lied repeatedly and consistently to their people, now, they, particularly in authoritarian regimes. I mean, Goebbels was a professional liar uh, and was, was actually very good at it. Uh, communist China, uh, Stalin had entire departments dedicated to providing what we'd now call fake news. Incidentally, I'm not sure that I agree with you that Trump is lying. I think it's important to distinguish between a lie, which is when you say something knowing it to be untrue, and a delusion mm -hmm. where you believe something that the rest of the world knows mm -hmm. is not true, but is nevertheless a genuine belief of your own. I think Trump actually lives in a world of his own, uh, complete with what we now call alternative facts. And just spout this stuff. It's actually more scary. I mean, that is a very good point. But I, I wonder how far you think then public lying uh, is related to our increasing digital world. I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that, you know, before social media, a, a president, prime minister, politician would rely on a journalist kind of putting out what they wanted to say. And then the journalist would, if, it were, if they were a good journalist, fact check it or provide it with context. And so it would be very difficult for um, a prime minister 
minister to talk, kind of say blatant untruths and it get out to the public unfiltered. What you've got now is a kind of direct line that in some ways is a positive thing between the electorate and the elected, but in other ways, ways is a negative thing because it means they can essentially put out propaganda unchecked and and I think you know the community notes on Twitter which you can put on certain tweets to provide context and to debunk it I think that's a good good tool but ultimately because it's because politicians are so accessible now and have you know essentially you are publishing work when you tweet or post something on Facebook or on social media there is no ability to kind of you know pull them up on that in that moment and I think that's why we've seen it proliferate so much it is social media and it is that kind of um you know memification of politics and and clickbait politics Uh, and it's really given people like trump who really do live in a world of their own um the ability to create their own fantasy world and have lots of people live in it with them and have create echo chambers which amplify them Mm. and where journalists you know can't step in and say hang on a minute this isn't true because you know if he doesn't want to talk to a journalist and have a journalist scrutinize him on camera he doesn't have to so how do we how do we stop this and and should the the platforms themselves be responsible. I mean, there's a lot of argument that they should, but are they stepping up enough? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. I use Twitter a lot. Twitter has become a cesspit recently. In terms, the only good thing that I'd say has has started to come out about recently is community notes. But since it was uh, since it's been taken off by Elon Musk, you've seen a real decline in the kind of quality of the the, the kind of checking of tweets on racism, anti-Semitism, all this sort of stuff, fake news. You now can pay for your account to be promoted essentially with a blue tick as if it's factual and it's not. So I think social media has a huge role to play. Regulation of social media has a huge role to play to tackle these lies. But fundamentally, I do think it, the cat is out of the bag. And I think an important part of, of it moving forward should be education on these things. And I think schools should be looking at curriculums where, you know, you can say how to identify fake news on the internet or you know where you can get reliable sources from because this is the world we live in now and I think there needs to be a kind of um, a- adapting to that otherwise I do worry about where democracy is headed because it's so easy to present mm. fake news now as fact and have it and, and, and spread unchecked. John I wonder how what role the Israel Gaza and Russia Ukraine conflicts have played in the spread of misinformation and also why when there are plenty of examples of footage of real footage that's terrible why we're seeing footage from other wars and conflicts being sold to us as if it's from here and now they say don't they that truth is the first casualty of war that when the guns start firing people will start lying to cover up what they're doing and to promote what they're doing Uh, i i really don't think that the wars in ukraine or gaza are qualitatively any different in that regard from other wars that sadly we've we've had to live through. Why do we get all this obviously fake footage when there's so much real and disturbing footage? I suspect a lot of it uh, is is lazy journalism. It's easier just to pull something down from a rack and perhaps Photoshop it than actually to go out and and look for the real thing. Sad, but I mean, not all journalists are are held to the extremely high standards of Monocle. Mm. Uh, Finally, I wonder if either of you have a favourite lie by a public figure. Oh, a favourite lie... I can't think of one off the top of my head. John has one. My fa- personal favourite, I, mean, I deal with North Korea, so I'm knee-deep in political <laughs> lies, but my personal favourite is the one uh, that they, the North Koreans continue to say that mountains actually danced when Kim Jong-il was born. Tragically, there's been extensive uh, geoseismic surveys of that moment and no normal uh, abnormal behaviour has been detected. So I'm afraid we have to conclude it didn't actually happen. Perhaps mine is going to be then um, Donald Trump saying he did 
that he'd done the most uh, for black people in America since Abraham Lincoln. As a black person, I just find that objectively quite hilarious. I know it's quite depressing in some ways, but on the other hand, it's just <laughs> the complete audacity I just find quite amusing. And, you know, he's going to be on our TVs a lot with this election this year. The one positive, the very, very small positive is that you get to see him say the most just outlandish thing. I mean, I don't know who actually believes that, but clearly yeah. he does. Listen, thank you so much, and thank you for legging it from the train station. <laughs> that's okay. uh, That's Nadine Bachelor-Hunt and John Everard. Uh, and uh, I, of course, am your host, Georgina Godwin. I am six foot two and blonde and 35. Uh, <laughs> now, this time last week, we kicked off a new global spin-off of our Letter from New York series with the Letter from Singapore by Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. Well, to continue our epistolary world tour. This week we're hearing from Paige Reynolds who sent this letter from the lesser-known Greek island of Syros. In a few minutes we will be arriving at the port of Syros. Passengers whose final destination is Syros are kindly requested to be ready for disembarkation. Drivers should proceed to the garages. Please make sure that you have not left any of your personal belongings behind. Thank you. Two hours on the express ferry from Athens, the lesser-known island of Syros and its capital, Ermopoli, are often missed off the island hop tourist trail, but they're all the better for it. Pull into Ermopoli's vast port and an amphitheatre of classic Hellenic homes and colourful neoclassical buildings cascade down the city's two adjacent hills. It all makes for a rather grand introduction, and one quite unlike its neighbours. So what is the story of this Cycladic city that was once the shipping capital of Greece? Like the tales of many Greek cities, the story of Ermopoli is one that is indelibly marked by occupation. In fact, several of them. From 1204 until 1522, it was the Phoenicians. With them came Catholicism and also Ermopoli's first official settlement, Anelsiros, a labyrinthine village set back behind the city centre. Unless your eyes are surgically attached to Google Maps, you will certainly get lost here. That's okay, though. The jagged paths and hidden lanes of pastel-hued hilltop homes are a real treat. And if you break into an almighty sweat, during what is indeed a very steep climb, that's okay too. There are plenty of sun-dappled terraces where you can catch your breath and drink in the view alongside an aperitivo. And amongst the cute tavernas and blossoming Bourgainvillea, there's something special for fans of Rebetico folk music. That's the voice of Marcos Van Vacaris, singing his fetid love song to Siros, Frango Siriani. Born in Anos Siros in 1905, Van Vacaris has long been considered the patriarch of Rebetico, often referred to as the Greek blues. And tucked away along one of Anos Siros's cobbled streets is a small museum packed with memorabilia, including the old gramophone, that tells the story of one of the island's most famous cultural exports. Make it to the top of Anoceros and you'll find Ayos Yorios and its panoramic viewpoint. This peach-coloured Catholic church was originally built in around 1200 AD, but was destroyed by, yep, you guessed it, Syros's next occupiers, the Ottomans, who remained rulers of this island and large parts of modern Greece until the Greek War of Independence that began in 1821. 
This revolutionary war is when Hermopoli, as we know it today, started to take shape. Protected by France, Syros became a safe haven for those escaping the persecution of the Turks. Refugees and Greek revolutionaries from the likes of Chios, Spetses, Smyrna, Kassos and elsewhere flocked to the neutral island and before long they transformed the humble town into a vital commercial and industrial hub. This accounts for the impressive neoclassical architecture of many of Hermopoli's key buildings. Take the city hall, designed by German-born Ernst Ziller, whose palatial buildings also proliferated in Athens at this time or the Apollo Theatre, designed to be a mini-version of Milan's La Scala. The city had Greece's first ever shipyard, the textiles industry flourished, and the banking sector thrived, so much so that at one point the island had its own currency. All this meant that by 1856, it became the second most populated Greek city after Athens. However, after a rise often comes a fall. The establishment of the Athens port of Piraeus and competition from the mainland city of Patras reduced the city's commercial importance. And by the late 19th century, Hermopolis' status as the nation's centre of craft, industry and production had expired. Today, Hermopoli is still unique amongst the Cycladics for its large permanent population of around 11,000 citizens and sound infrastructure including a university, which gives the lively feel of a place that's actually lived and worked in all year round. And the residue of its former grandeur remains too. And what better way to take it in than submerged in the sparkling waters of the Aegean? If you agree, follow these steps. Get up nice and early and take a winding route from the town centre up past the Byzantine church of Ios Nicolas and down to Asteria Beach. You won't find much sand here, but you will find a counterintuitively inviting concrete slab where leathered locals will be stretched out with a dog in lap and book in hand, nipping in and out of the glittering blue sea. Climb down the metal stairs, swim out a hundred yards and look back the way you came. From this spot, Hermopolis' majesty needs little explanation. For Monocle Radio in Syros, I'm Paige Reynolds. And that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks uh, once again to my panellists today, John Everard and Nadine Bachelor-Hunt. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Tanzan Howard. I'm Georgina Godwin here in London and I'll be back on the Monocle Daily at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>